Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is Richard Leiter, founder of the InVenture Group. He is ranked by Forbes as one of the top five most respected executive coaches. He has 30 years' experience coaching people to live and work on purpose. He's also an author of numerous books, including Repacking Your Bags and, most recently, Claiming Your Place at the Fire. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Cheryl. So glad to have you here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and today we really want to look at leading a life on purpose. And um, I know, Richard, you have a lot of experience with that personally and also in helping so many people around the world to look at that. Um, one of the things that that I have noticed is that our world, whether it's in the United States or Europe or other places around the globe, often support such a fast pace, um, especially as people are moving up in their career. Often it's the, it's the if, I'm, if I'm busier than you are, I must be more important than you are. And in that place, people don't have time to really look at, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I on purpose? Do you find that true? Yep, absolutely. I see uh, people at all ages and stages today uh, struggling with uh, hurry sickness, always going somewhere, never being anywhere. And usually what stops that is some sort of a trigger, some sort of a crisis that can be medical, can be relational, can be career, vocational, or uh, financial, but uh, that stops people to look at what are the real constants in their lives? What are the things that don't change in the midst of all this change? And, of course, for me, the core constant is purpose. And uh, purpose is ultimately the answer to the question, why do I get up in the morning? And why am I doing what I'm doing? And certainly that question has more juice or more energy at different ages and stages or with circumstances, like I mentioned. And when you have individuals who believe they are on purpose and are doing the work, even though they're in that what, what you call hurry sickness, and they believe this is what they're supposed to be doing, um, how, how would someone know if, in fact, that is their purpose? I mean, could they ask their friends questions, specific questions that would help them know? Are there ways to get to that? Well, there's a lot. I mean, first of all, uh, the assumption is... Uh, let me just back up uh, a minute. That when I first started down this purpose path was in the late '60s, actually, and uh, I, I uh, got there. Uh, originally, I was trained as a vocational psychologist, looking at vocation, calling, choices in career, and this kind of thing. So that was that's that's one way to look at purpose is to. Um, when, when we're using our gifts, our natural talents, our gifts on things that we care about or feel passionate or purposeful about in environments that are healthy that allow us to do that, we're on purpose. So one way to look at purpose is, is that. So uh, another way, though, is um, one of my teachers on the purpose path was uh, Viktor Frankl. Mm. And man, the book Man's Search for Meaning is something that many people are familiar with, but uh, I highly 
advocate that people reread it more than once because it's one of the more powerful books I think on the human condition ever written. And he he talks about purpose as a uh, moments of decision. And even in the concentration camp, and Frankel was, uh, for listeners who don't know, was in a Nazi concentration camp. He was at the very height of his professional uh, life, was taken, his family was exterminated. He survived. Uh, but he talked about what he, in Man's Search for Meaning, what he learned from that. And purpose is a moment-to-moment choice that we make on how we're going to show up in the world and what's important to us. And if it's all about us and our own self-absorption, our own self, even survival in a concentration camp, we're, we're way less effective in surviving or in living than if we have a balance of self and others. So purpose ultimately uh, becomes the, the decision of what your reason for living is. And uh, if you look at the dictionary, it'll say something like like that, or one's reason for being. But how it's played out, to answer your question, on a day-to-day basis, even in a concentration camp, are the decisions we make moment to moment. And uh, just cap it by saying there's a quote that I use constantly from E.B. White who says this. He says, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to save or to save the world. Excuse me. I, I rise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. <laughs> this makes it hard to plan the day. So for people on purpose, there's always this tension between saving and savoring the world. And we always have choices in situations, whether it's going to be about us or about them, or about just enjoying, and which is fine, and uh, but also uh, one without the other really may, does not make a full life. So the idea is to actually do both. Yes. It's something that is a high contribution to the world we live in right. and others, and also enjoy the ride. Huh? Exactly, and make choices out of conscious awareness so the first question I ask is for people to name their purpose and write it down and test it out for a week minimally and ask themselves at the, at the uh, beginning of a day what would make it an on-purpose day, what behaviors or practices or choices. And at the end of the day, before they turn out the light, look back over the day and say, was this an on-purpose day and what made it so? And so there need to be real practices, but the starting point is awareness and uh, in terms of naming our purpose. Mm-hmm. It seems to be almost an epidemic these days. I can't tell you the number of people who say, if I knew my purpose, I would do it. There seems to be a lot of people who are in the search mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know a lot of my clients and, and other people that I know um, in the business world are at about you know mid thirties, forties, they start saying, "Is this all there is?" Right. And and as I look around and listen, the number of people in this mode is huge. Is that more? Is that happening more today than it used to? Well, I, I'm. It you know everybody's an experiment of one when it comes to purpose, so uh, we can. It's hard to make broad generalizations, but if I were to make a broad generalization, I would say that. You know, we're we're becoming in this country, it's already happened in Europe, it's happening in Asia, but we're becoming a gerontocracy. In this state,
state I live in, Minnesota, in 10 years there will be more people over the age of 65 than there are kids in school. And so you start to look at, you know, one person turning 50 every eight seconds and all these statistics, and you say, well, aging has got something to do with this. As we look into vital aging in the second half of our lives, when in that you know, when does that happen? Well, research-wise, it happens at age 50, but it really happens earlier for, for most or many, many people when they start to look at what really matters in life, what really brings them um, uh, fulfillment. And so I think in certain ways the reason we're hearing it more is because of the speed of life, as we talked earlier, and secondly, uh, just plain uh, uh, aging. So I, I sum it up by saying for vital aging, there needs to be three things, and I call them the three M's, money, medicine, and meaning. Hmm. And uh, oftentimes we've spent the first half of life looking at the money, and the medicine is code for health, not just medicine per, per se, but to put it into the three M's category. <laughs> I spoke at 3M Company the other day, and they thought I'd made it up just for them, but I said, no, I actually wrote it in a book. It's not about you. But, <laughs> but um, So the money and medicine thing, without meaning, uh, portends a, a life with less vitality and less uh, happiness. So how do you go about getting that meaning? Does it mean... Uh, service in the world? Does it mean I have to run out and volunteer? Well, it it means that you need to to hit the pause button, go inside, and really look at what matters and what makes a difference in people's life. So all this research these days on positive psychology and the positive psychology movement, it's all about this because people are now asking the question. Mm-hmm. I, I, that takes me back to the earlier question around what if I think I am on purpose? And um, does it happen that that people are going along and they believe they're contributing at a high level and then um, somebody looks at them and says, no, you're out of your mind. You know, what you're doing is not healthy in your life. What you're doing is um, chasing the dollar. And they may say, well, my purpose is to provide for my family. I mean, is, is that okay? Sure. I mean, I think it comes in various shapes and forms. Basically, the in The Power of Purpose, um, which was kind of the seminal book I wrote on this topic, uh, purpose for me is, the way I define it, is using your gifts in service of something beyond yourself. Mm. So it's really not just uh, throwing money at something mm-hmm. or... Uh, It's not even volunteering for something where you're not engaged. If you dig a little bit deeper, they talk about, or I talk about kind of the three levels of happiness. And there's pleasure, engagement, and meaning. And the meaning level is what we're talking about, the purpose level. We we all do things for pleasure. Mm -hmm. We drink a cup of coffee for pleasure or have a glass of wine for pleasure or do certain activities for pleasure, and it's over when it's over. Right. And then you have to buy it again or do it again to, to get that pleasure. Then there's engagement. That's really using your gifts on things that, you know, where you really feel uh, the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow. But it's where there's a real engagement where you lose yourself in something. You're using your gifts on something you, you care about. And so we do things where we feel engaged, and it may or may not be 
beyond yourself. It may or may not be serving the world in certain, certain ways. And then there's the third level, the meaning level, and that's where you really are using your gifts in service to something beyond yourself. And there's a deep, long-lasting sense of fulfillment in that that transcends both engagement and pleasure. And I think humans want all three. It's like E.B. White said, saving and savoring the world. We want pleasure, we want engagement, and we want meaning. But as we get older and our bodies don't often do exactly the same things, the pleasures, the engagements, uh, there is still meaning available to us. But that demands a new level of inquiry, a new level of conversation. And I call that new level claiming your place at the fire. Uh, that's my latest book on how do you find this kind of fulfillment in the second half of your life. Right. And I'm curious about the concept of claiming your place at the fire. Could you talk a little bit about what the fire represents? Yeah, well, for for thousands and thousands of years, we've uh, in times of transition and times of stress, we've sat around fires with elders throughout our evolutionary history. And um, so in Af- I've been going to Africa now for 25 years, leading walking safaris in East Africa and Tanzania specifically, and uh, sitting around the fire with elders over there, as well as trekking and learning and, you know, all the things that go with a three-week experience in the, in, in the bush. And uh, a few years ago, in sitting around the fire, talking with elders from a tribe called the Hadza, which is... Uh, the Hadza is spelled H-A-D-Z-A, and they're they're the last of the original ancestors, the original hunter-gatherers who are still living the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in its purest form. So I'm sitting around the fire, and I'm asking them about how do you become an elder, and what's the role of elders, and all of this. And at some point, a guy uh, looks across the fire at me, and uh, he's an elder, in this case, in his 40s, because they don't live as long as we do historically. And uh, he says, so Richard, who, who are you? Who, who's your tribe? <laughs> and then we start to look beyond that at this whole notion of, uh, just final comment here, is noticing that the wisest of the elders were sitting the closest to the fire. And from there I went off into the... Let's talk more about this right after the break. All right. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. 
Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back. We're speaking with Richard Leiter today on the Leading a Life on Purpose. And, Richard, you were, before the break, speaking about the Hausa tribe in Africa and that they are still the original hunter-gatherer tribe. And you had asked an elder sitting around the fire, how do you get to be an elder? And he was perplexed that I would even be asking that question because it's just such a natural. They live in an intergenerational world where um, people of all ages are blended together and, and uh, so he was wondering why I was asking and, and and when I explained that we had the role of elders in our society had been kind of dismissed or marginalized in certain ways for a whole variety of reasons he just looked at me and said well how could you have let lost this how could you have let go of this this is so critical to society and, and I started to observe in further conversation that um, as he talked about the role of elders etc that the elders there who were the wisest not the oldest but the wisest sat the closest to the fire had the largest voice and there wasn't any manual for that it just happened so I thought well how do we how do I and how do we claim our places at the fire our voices in the second half of life in our villages so to speak and uh, that night late I I uh, I sat by myself around the fire as everyone else had gone to bed and, and I talked or thought about the four flames of vital aging this kind of came to me as there was about four flames left in the fire and that became the book Claiming Your Place at the Fire uh, and the four flames of vital aging was the model that uh, I now teach in programs um, so um, it's interesting, Cheryl, the Hadza are, National Geographic has a, a project going now called the Genographic Project. So if you go online to National Geographic and you go to Genographic, you'll see they're doing this DNA testing with uh, blood sampling all over the world on every continent. And what they're finding is that the DNA pathways all lead back to the Hadza, to East Africa. Really? So many people are, you know, under consideration about where do we come from and who are our ancestors. And so as you look at the history geographically and climate-wise and everything like this, and you look at how the world used to be connected, and you say, well, how did they get from East Africa out and uh, all of a sudden, you see this uh, these pathways online 
Well, I've been sitting around the fire with these people for the last dozen years, listening to and learning from them about uh, life, and, and I've found that now them to be, I always felt connected, because the theme of my trips are called Back to the Rhythm, hmm. and I named them Back to the Rhythm years and years ago, because I was thinking back to the environment, back to the natural. Well, over the years, I've realized it's back to our ancestral rhythm, too, to learning what it means to be elders and what it, learn, what it means to be a totally sharing society and on and on. So it's a very, very big deal right now, this IBM and a lot of people pouring money into this research on this DNA testing to see, well, where did we come from? Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me you say that um, the eldership there is not about an age. Right. It's about wisdom. Right. And um, two things come to mind. One is how how do you know if somebody's wise? <laughs> you know, how do you well, know give me a good advice? You know, it's interesting. Uh, um, there, they follow people who have capacity and understanding and compassion. There is no hierarchy. It's a leaderless culture, actually, to begin with. It's a very interesting laboratory because they don't have leaders. They're in, hunters and gatherers uh, are are fluid. They're uh, more in motion all the time. They've never known famine in their entire oral history. Really? Whereas the other tribes around them who are... I will call them newer tribes. The uh, are pastoralists, agriculturalists. Well, they're prone to disease. They're prone to uh, the vagaries of climate, etc. Where the hunters and gatherers follow where there's resource, berries, tubers, food. So these agricultural and pastoralists come running to the people they look down their nose at during the rest of the time. During times of uh, major issue or challenge like that, they come to them because they've never known famine. So they live that way, and they also are total sharing culture. Back to your hurry sickness and getting mine and all of that. Well, if one person doesn't eat, no one eats. If one person eats, everybody eats. It's totally a sharing culture. And, uh, you know, I know at one point I I gave this... um, elder a knife I've been carrying this knife with me the whole trip and his knife was kind of like a grapefruit knife it had been sharpened so many times it looked it looked like it was not useful any longer and so I gave him my new buck knife which was strong new sharp knife and he immediately turned around and gave it to the young guy right behind him and I said to him his name is Maraba I said Maraba wait that knife is for you and he looked at me like with a, a look of complete amazement, he said, in our culture, to have two of anything would be the ultimate moral travesty. And I said, yeah, but why didn't you give him the older knife and you keep the younger one? He said, that'd be the second moral travesty. <laughs> so he turned around. I mean, that's, I said, okay, I get it. What sharing is all about, is it? And, and uh, so um, he knew he would be taken care of. He didn't have to worry about that, and and so this sharing is so evident there that it shocks Americans and Europeans and others when I take when I take them over there. How much pure compassion there can be in a culture without being trained to be compassionate. You know, one of the um, 
elements of our culture in the United States or in the Western world is all about learning. And so I'm wondering, what is the best way to learn from them? Well, you know, we can't all go over there. There aren't that many of them left, and, they, you know, it's not a tourist trade type of thing, and we've been earning the right to... Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know what the best way is other than I've tried to write about it in my books and others who've, who've done that, but, uh, you know, this is the same group that was in the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy, yes. which kind of made fun of them in certain ways and other ways showed their plight in the world, but... Um, so, you know, I don't know the answer to that other than, um, I mean, we have compassionate souls and people in our culture, we call them elders, that we can learn from. And so, you know, I, I think everyone needs a sounding board, a kitchen cabinet, their own uh, circle around the fire type of thing. And on that circle around the fire, uh, there ought to be at least one wise elder. So I'd ask your listeners, who's their wise elder? Who's the person that they could turn to and and observe that maybe has some of these same uh, characteristics of purpose and compassion? We call it these days generativity, who are gen elders, who are generative elders, who are stewarding the world for the future and not just for their own self-interest or even their own family's self-interest, but it's a larger look at at the world than, than that. Well, it sounds like the Hasa tribe really helped you create your deep connection to the African continent. Yep. And I know that you uh, lead expeditions there on a pretty much a yearly basis. Is that yep. Right? I've led them once a year now for 25. This is my 25th year. Mm-hmm. And I got there originally through Outward Bound. I was on the board of trustees of Outward Bound, and I went on a fundraising trip over there and climbed Kilimanjaro, which I've done many times mm-hmm. since. And um, and really, my company is called the InVenture Group, yeah. and this is called an InVenture Expedition. So after my first trip with Outward Bound, I started leading my own trips over there calling them InVenture Expeditions, and really what they are, Cheryl, are odysseys. They're not trips. People mm-hmm. sign up for these trips a year in advance, and during the year they read, they study, they get in shape, they learn a little of the language and the culture, they talk with each other. So when they come together in Africa, they are true learners or seekers who are there for all the right reasons and not there to just click some photos and go home and, and, and right. uh, on the hero's journey, so to speak. Right. right. What kinds of uh, issues come up when you're all there together? Issues meaning... Uh, what kinds of things just, are people working on uh, for them? Well, the group I just, I just got back and the group I took were all men and all between the age of 51 and 71. So these are men who are looking at how do I become an elder? What is vital aging? Uh, they're chewing on things like relationships. One man on the trip, his wife had just died two years ago. Another one, uh, the the elder on the group, the older person, I should say, on the group, he was 71. His wife hasn't known him for 15 years. She had early onset Alzheimer's. So. His whole thing is about letting go and about how he can be fully engaged in the next part of his life. So they don't go to solve problems. Those are two examples. Most people go 
because they want to get away from it all and to have a deep dive into themselves and the world and have a great adventure at the same time. Sure. Yeah. And they want to... They, so often people have said, I don't know where to go to talk about these things. The mm -hmm. people I hang around with don't tend to talk this way. And so what they're looking for is rich, deep, honest dialogue without it being therapy, but with it being therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about um, your perspective on men versus women in this arena. Uh, I know that this trip you just did, uh, and I believe the one last year, too, was all men. Yep, right. And um, do you think, well, let's hold that. <laughs> we'll okay. talk about that when we come back. All right. Four oh ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Does your business have what it needs to compete in today's marketplace? Does your company's image set you apart from your competitors? Whether you are looking for a new brand identity or product strategy, host Robert Hale will help you create new market strategies that will grow revenues and profits. Whether your company has $1 million or $100 million in sales, building successful marketing strategies airs live on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 Eastern. To be successful in today's competitive market, a commanding strategy that positions your company Company for growth will be your strongest possible strategic advantage in any business. Building successful marketing strategies will explore innovative ideas and practices that use the latest theories and practice. Join host Robert Hale every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 Eastern, for building successful marketing strategies and begin building brand and market share. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. There you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. This is Cheryl Esposito with Leading Conversations, and we're speaking today with Richard Leiter who is author of Claiming Your Place at the Fire, and we've been speaking about your experiences in Africa, Richard, um, with the Hausa tribe and how you take people into the, the journey into eldership. And just before we went to break, we asked about um, men versus women and the experiences they have and your perspective on how um, this journey may play out differently. You know, I've done... Since in 25 years, I've done all men's groups. I've done. I've never done an all women's group, although I've been challenged to do that. But I've never 
don't think I would be probably the, the I could co-lead it, but I couldn't just lead it by myself. And uh, I've done it with couples, and I've done it with mostly uh, mixed half and half, half men, half women, not necessarily related to each other and as couples. And the conversation is always has differences in it when uh, and what I'm finding is that there's no place for men to talk with men. I should say not there's no place, but there's few few and far between places for men to to get offline to talk with other men where it doesn't uh, devolve into locker room talk or whatever else, uh, business talk or sports talk or whatever. And I set my trips up where certainly stuff comes up that's fun and like that, but but uh, it's really a deep conversation about what it means to be a man in the second half of life, about the role of men. And so uh, I find that when if these same people were there with their spouses, it's a different level of conversation. What's sure. what's said, what's unsaid, what's filtered, and all of that. And it's not bad, but it's just different. So I'm increasingly drawn to, and men are drawn to these kinds of things because it's holistic and it's deep. Mm-hmm. And it's an odyssey where they become students for a year, not just going off and punching their ticket that they went to Africa. Right, right. And and in this odyssey, what are kind of some of the things that they you said they study on before they go? What are some of those things? Well, of course, they read my st- my stuff <laughs> because the adventure discussion is framed like by cl- the book Claiming Your Place. So there's some common ground there, but they read uh, articles and things about the uh, tribes we're going to be seeing and uh, they learn about the ecology and uh, all of that so it's uh, you know it's it's holistic that way they get in shape if they're not in shape uh, physically but basically um, and they read books like Man's Search for Meaning and others that I uh, require them to, to read before going and they keep a journal and they live inside certain questions that I feed them, like what is their purpose in this next phase of their life? And the four flames of vital aging really frame the conversation. And the four flames are identity, community, passion, and purpose. So they look at identity, what's their new, how do they reinvent themselves for the next phase of their life? What do they need to end in my parlance? What do they need to unpack? and repack. So gerontologists, um, as I've been studying the second half of life now for almost 40 years, gerontologists often do a life review with people. So I would say that in order to help them move on to the next phase of life. So I help these men in this last instance do a life review, but it's not a major one, but they keep a journal about what they're going to let go of, what has got them to this place, and what kind of radical simplicity can they do to open up some space for the next part of their life to for new things to show up in? So that's under identity, and we talk about that. And one of the powerful things I, I do is I ask people to pick a picture from the first half of their life, only one, hmm. and bring it with them and use that as an opening to talk at the first fire about the identity flame. Well, I mean, they could talk the whole trip just about that one picture. 
Is it a picture of themselves? Yeah. Ah, okay. And I don't tell them which picture to bring or what era or anything. I just say pick one picture of yourself in the first half of life. And uh, oftentimes, most often, people will picture a really young one that has some, some symbolism that all of a sudden just gets them off to the races with looking at who they've become and what they want next. And then under community, there's the whole thing about uh, mentoring and about friendships. There's a whole deep dive into how so many of these successful people have an abundance of acquaintances and a poverty of friendships. And what is a friendship in the second half? What are the criteria for that that's different than the first half? And uh, how do I find friends? And many of these people say, I don't know how you did this, Richard, but this group I would have picked. And, uh, well, I screen. I have many, many people on my waiting list to go on these things. I try to put a group together that I think will really is the right mix and the right chemistry and that there will be that deep friendship mm-hmm. potential. And so on. So the four flames are the are the uh, architecture for the discussion and the readings prior to going. So given that when men come together, they go deeper in a way that they typically don't go when um, their spouses or partners are around, um, or simply even other women. Um, how can people do this work if they don't go to Africa or if they don't go out and do solo vision quests? Or is it possible to get to the inner core of oneself without going out into nature or spending time alone? Um, yes, but I think one needs to do the work some one way or another. I say in uh, Claiming a Place at the Fire that becoming a wise elder uh, won't just happen because we've lived a long life. The process of becoming a, you know, a true elder requires that we seek the growth of elderhood, and it requires two essential choices. First, we embrace elderhood as a stage of development. It's not just getting old and then living it out. It's we, This is a whole new stage. In the early 1900s, the average life expectancy in this country was 47. Now it's 80, and uh, we've been given this bonus decades here. And it, it, So embracing elderhood is a stage of development. And secondly, doing the personal work necessary to growing whole. And so becoming an elder involves growing whole in the second half of life, not old per se. So they can do that work, that personal work, in a whole variety of ways, from therapy to coaching to, you know, I've developed uh, something here at the University of Minnesota, a partnership where I'm a senior fellow at the University of Minnesota's Center for Spirituality and Healing. And uh, that center, where I'm a senior fellow, I developed a one-day program called Working on Purpose, which is where they can go to, anybody can go to this, um, these one-day programs uh, and initiate this work and then decide what they want to do with it. They can form their own circle to do it in. They can hire a coach. And in November, I, I trained 40 people to teach this one-day program across the country. So it's out there in different places and will, and will be even more extensive in the, in the future. So there's simple things like that. 
There's things like reading a book and having a fireside chat with your with others, uh, and of course, then there's the you know the things like going to Africa, which are. So I think there's a lot of different ways to get on it, but you but I think the two essentials, Cheryl, are embracing elderhood as a stage of development and doing the work necessary to or uh, embracing the work necessary to, to growing whole. So what can we do with younger people who um, who view this stage of life as so far away? And are there things that we can be cultivating in them that yes. will lead them to a place that is um, not such a, uh, for lack of a better term, the midlife crisis, what's it all about kind of process? You know, it's so interesting. I'm teaching uh, this program, this Working on Purpose program at Omega in June, Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York in June. And I've been getting uh, emails and calls from people who say, I've, I've got my mother or father going to this, but I'm 32. I want to go to this, too. I need this. Can I come? And in a perfect world in the future, perfect meaning in a world that I created, <laughs> that it would be intergenerational. Yeah. And we'd be there together looking at this from a variety of angles. And I'm looking at, th- at that right now mm-hmm. because I want to live in an intergenerational world, not a uh, segmented world. And uh, But I think where the real entry point is for young people is that to this day we're still doing a lousy job with what I would call vocational coaching mm-hmm. and helping them discern their calling. They're still getting out of college and university and other trade schools, et cetera, with good educations but not knowing who they are yes. as, as in terms of, of uh, natural gifts and passions and purpose and things like this, and they're struggling. So I think we need to do a better job of, of uh, that. I d- uh, so the entree point for a lot of people is, is career counselors or, you know, I wrote the book Whistle While You Work, yeah. Heeding Your Life's Calling, those kinds of things. We developed a tool here called Calling Cards. We can hardly keep it in stock. It goes out so fast. That helps young people discern their gifts and what they care about in quick order rather than going through some psychological assessments or things like that. So there there are ways to do it, but I, I don't think, you know, if I had a dollar for every person over every parent or grandparent who said, God, I've got a kid struggling. What have you got for them? Uh, I mean, it's just legendary hmm. out there. You know, it. it <clears throat> excuse me. It seems like um, if we follow the money in our economy, um, there's this belief that in order to do what you want, in order to really you know, work on purpose or to contribute to the world, it's not something you can make money at. There's, I mean, it's a, an interesting, uh, yeah. I think it's a fallacy, but it exists, and there's a lot of uh, societal pressure around that. Yep. And our colleges, our universities, I mean, let's face it, they teach people to go to work. Yep. They teach people how to work in, mostly in the corporate world. And so, and that's largely driven by economics. I mean, what is it that we can actually do to make a change there? I mean, I totally agree with you. That's the the case. I think it is a falsehood. But uh, we see so many people who have gotten sick in the middle of their lives because they're doing something that doesn't fit who they are. They did it because... 
they had to make a living or their parents wouldn't support them being an artist in college uh, and even though the arts was their trajectory or the environment or something like this. So I think what we have to do is get this kind of tool and thinking into our curriculums really early in life. Right. We'll be right back with Richard Leiter. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. When know how to activate that switch and so can you the winner's attitude with jeff and val g broadcast each friday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel the winner's attitude switch me on are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market if so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. From the stock market floor to your computer, you're listening to Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back with Richard Leiter today, author of Claiming Your Place at the Fire. And um, th- this whole conversation is fascinating to me, Richard. I am, um, we were talking before the break about the youth and how we get them to start early to think about their purpose. And do people just have one purpose in life? No, I think it continually, it, it morphs or continually uh, but, you know, what it is is it's a direction our life goes in. It's like going west. It's not like a goal that we check the box and now we've done our purpose. That's not purpose. Purpose is really the theme, the golden thread, the direction that we, what we want our life to be. 
about. And, you know, if you go to a funeral or you read an obituary, you'll see it'll start out with all the form stuff of what they did and where they did it and how famous they were about this. But then eventually in the service and in the obituary, it gets down to what really mattered to these people. And that, what really mattered was how they connected with the world around them. And in my interviews with elders, which I've been doing every few years as I write, and I go out and interview people and ask them if they could live their lives over again, there's always three themes. They'd say, I wish I would have been more reflective in my life, which means I wish I would have stopped and looked at the big picture occasionally, which is what elders help us do, actually, and what's triggering events in our life help us do. Mm-hmm. Secondly, they wish they would have been more courageous to live more tightly to their values, to their gifts and talents. When they were talking courage, they weren't talking about climbing Kilimanjaro. They were talking about courage in relationships and courage at work. Freud had it right. Work and love are the two major buckets, the two major trajectories where we spend our life's energy. And so they wish they would have been more courageous in those areas. And, of course, you know, they lived in different eras with depressions and wars and this and that. There's always spins and reasons why they didn't do things. But the third thing, Cheryl, is that they said if they could live their life over again, they would be they would understand earlier in life that the bottom line ultimately in one's life is to make a contribution. To leave a footprint, to make a dent, to somehow contribute to life. That it's not just about making a bunch of money and just even with within just one's own family. That's maybe one level of purpose. But and you don't have to be Nelson Mandela either and change an entire culture, but somehow all of us need to decide what we want our life to have been about. And going back earlier, people say, I wish I would have understood this earlier. So that's why I use the saving and savoring the world thing. So what's wrong with just savoring the world? Nothing. But it's not it. It's a blend of of saving and savoring. And the saving part of it is what's your contribution to life? So along the way, our contribution to life gets defined and redefined in different ways, but it's really... those moment-to-moment decisions about how we're going to show up in people's lives and not the big things, not the big buildings we've built for others or big dollar contributions. Ultimately, though, it's really where I've impacted another person's life. That's where I feel most fulfilled, and that's what gets into the funeral, so to speak. Wow. I can see how the concept of saving and savoring the world could really um, help young people understand how they can look at their life. Yeah. You know, and so it's not just about what is my job and career going to be about, but where do I want to be and how do I want to enjoy my days? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, in other cultures, like uh, the Maasai culture is one I've spent a lot of time in Africa. It's an obvious one. There, uh, Cheryl, there are rituals. You get to certain stages of life and you leave warriorhood and you go through a ritual, your mother actually shaves your head, talking about men in this instance, but women also have rituals, uh, where you become a junior elder and eventually a senior elder. Well, what kind of rituals do we have along the way that help people discern that you no longer have to be a warrior? You can now, you're now anointed, not anointed, but you're, you're now expected to be playing in a different way and that those elders are expected to give back to the community they're expected to do certain things 
in our culture they evaporate. Yeah. They're expected to go to Phoenix and uh, yeah. and escape. Well, that whole notion of aging and retirement is gone. Retirement is a tired word in our culture. It needs to end, and, and a whole new language needs to come forward. What language do we replace it with? Well, you know, I just met with the head gerontologist for AARP and some others, and they're struggling. You know, they took retirement. It's no longer American Associations of Retired Persons. They took retirement out. They scrapped it. It's just now AARP and AARP Magazine, et cetera, because even retirees hate the word retirement. <laughs> Right. So uh, I don't, you know, have a new word, but I the the word the term that I use is new elders. New elders, yeah. And I found the baby boomers were okay as long as the word new was in there because they weren't going to be elders in the way their <laughs> fathers and mothers were. This is a new elderhood, and um, so I think that's you know I'm working on new maps, new models, new language for vital aging. That's my work now. That's great. You have said in the past that um, there's a role for courage to play in helping us create a vision for humanity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it's what I'm talking about right now, and that is, that is that the courage to step into your voice, claim your place at the fire, to be a steward for what you think is a good world and a just world is the role of elders and always has been throughout history. Elders meaning new elders. Um, and so I think there needs to be a training and a new language as we were just talking about for what this stage of life can be, not only for the vitality of the people in it, but for the society and for the planet we live in. The, the world's not going to work if these elders don't step forward courageously. And so that's our job as we move forward. That's the way I see it. What, what, our, what our role is, what can we do? And, you know, the concept of legacy is another thing you talk a lot about. And the word sometimes scares people because it feels so big. Yeah. In our culture, we've tied the concept of legacy to leaving some monument or leaving some um, grand amount of financial resources or something like that. Um, and so how can, you know, somebody like you and me or some of our listeners, you know, what can they do if they don't have all that money and... Well, the I like the concept, although I don't like the term so much, of, of an ethical will. A standard will or a state is leaving your stuff behind, but an ethical will is what are you leaving behind in terms of your values, your purpose, your impact on your family and community and the world. And so I think one of the things we need to help people do is to create an ethical will. And uh, whether they write it and create it, they live it. So I think that's not so hard. That's not such a concept. What do you really believe and how have you lived it and how are you living it? What do you want? What kind of values and things like that do you want to pass down to the next generation? There's a lot of wealthy people who would rather pass their ethical will than their other will down to the next generation. Richard, leading a life on purpose clearly is something you're doing, and uh, the gift you bring to the world is helping all of us see and be better and how we make that happen for ourselves. Thanks for being here today. And uh, you can buy Richard's book, I mean, Your Place at the Fire, at just about any bookstore that exists. And, Richard, your website is? 
www.inventuregroup.com. Inventuregroup.com. You can learn a whole lot more. About and we have a store there that has books in it too. So, uh, and we send them out signed when they order through the store. So, uh, okay, sounds like a great gift. Yeah. Richard, thanks so much for being here. Sure, always great. Thanks a lot. You can join us each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time as we bring more leading conversations. And remember, everybody, think big. The world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. Cheryl Esposito.